Hoy Mets fans, welcome back to Amazing Avenue in Conversation. My name is Brian Salvatore, and joining me on the podcast today is ESPN's Buster Only. Buster has been working for ESPN for the last 18 years and was a sports writer for many years before then. You can find his work on ESPN.com as well as on their baseball broadcasts. He is part of the team on Sunday night that hopefully, weather permitting, is bringing us the Braves and the Mets. Jacob DeGrom is set to start that game, and we talk about DeGrom, the Mets, injuries, the shift, banned substances from pitchers' gloves, and much, much more. Check it out. All right, I am joined by Buster Olney, one of the many voices of baseball and ESPN. Now, for how many years have you been with ESPN now, Buster? Uh, this is year 18. I was hired in 2003. Wow. So, I mean, uh, we've been listening to you talk about baseball for a very, very long time. Thank you so much for making the time today. The Mets and the Braves are playing on Sunday Night Baseball on Sunday. As long as the weather cooperates, uh, I am sitting here in New Jersey just staring at rain for a couple of days. And uh, anyway... Thank you for making the time. And uh, just to start off, you know, this has been such a crazy year so far for injuries around baseball. But as a Mets fan with 17 players on the IL, I am just overwhelmed by injuries. Do you think that this is simply a, um, you know, an issue of a shortened season last year? Everybody trying to get back into peak physical shape, just just the uncertainty of what last year was leading into this. Or do you think there's a bigger issue at play here with injuries across baseball? I think both things are true. I do think it's related to last year. And, and when we did our production call the other day uh, to get ready for this Sunday night, Matt Biscurgeon, who does such a great job play-by-play for us and you know works for the Baseball Network, uh, gave us a stat from one of his researchers that for the 30 teams across the baseball landscape, the average number of players on the 26-man rosters who are on injured list is eight. I mean, that's 30% of the players on rosters across the board. So, you know, the Mets uh, injuries lately have been acute, um, but throughout the sport, it's a real issue. Uh, I talked to someone who works for a team at the head of baseball operations for a team that's considered to be one of the best in baseball with soft tissue injuries. And he said that a lot of the conversation is that in lieu of baseball last year, when they had the shutdown, that a lot of players began to do a lot of training, physical training, because they didn't know what else to do. Uh, but they were doing a lot of things that don't involve baseball naturally. You know, right. if you can't play the games, you're going to go and do something. And so he said that the the thought among a lot of the front offices is they just, when they got back into the baseball, all of a sudden their bodies are doing things that they're not used to. And this has always stuck out with me as well. You know, about 20 years ago, I had a conversation with Dr. James Andrews, the famous surgeon mm -hmm. who's done all the elbow reconstructions. He said, you know, as the medicine gets better, there are going to be more players on the injured list. And, and it kind of it's a counterintuitive thought. But what he was saying was, you know, uh, that at this point we can diagnose all kinds of things by such small degrees that. You know, 30 years ago, the trainer might have said to a player, hey, slap some dirt on it and go out because they didn't really fully know what's going on. But now teams can say, well, you have a grade 1.2 strain on this abdomen. And because they know that information, shut the player down, shut the player down. So they might have a, a greater knowledge, but it's also led to more players being put down. That's a really fascinating point. It I've was. Never, I've never heard that before. I really like that. That's good. Um, so looking at this, you know, the National League East right now, the Mets and the Braves are 
recognized as, I think, number one and two right now in the division in terms of talent and in terms of potential talent. This was supposed to be the best division in baseball. And yeah. due to injuries and due to teams just beating up on one another, it's, you know, the Mets are the only team above 500. Do you think that the National League East has been underperforming? Do you blame injuries? Or is this, this just a matter of a couple of good teams just beating up each other? Uh, I, I think that it reminds me of a NASCAR race uh, where there's high anticipation and you have a 25 car wreck in the first three <laughs> laps. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what's left amid the rubble. Um, look, the, the Mets have been crushed by injuries. The Braves have been crushed by injuries. I mean, Mike Soroka being out for the year and Noah punching the bench, uh, you know, all kinds of issues for them. You know, the Phillies uh, probably are about where we thought they were going to be. But the Nationals have had, had a lot of problems. And that's why, as we sit here today, I kind of feel like we don't even have any clue about what's going to happen. <laughs> right. It, it, you feel like that the teams are so bunched together that it could be that a difference making move or two as we move forward could be uh, it could lead a team to win a division. And that's where I feel like that in the end, by the time we get to August 1st, the day after the trade deadline, the Mets are going to have an inherent advantage because I don't see the Braves being big spenders. You know, they're not a team with a huge budget. The Marlins, while they got Starling Marte last summer, surprised people, they're not necessarily going to be that team. Uh, the Phillies really blew out their budget during the winter time, but the Mets Look, they're pot committed in this uh, in, a, in this you know poker game, and I think they'll go out and make some big moves before the deadline. The Mets also have the benefit of I mean, I know that Syndergaard was just shut down for six weeks, but by the by the trade deadline, there should be a better sense of what injuries are are going to be a problem for the rest of the season versus you know which injuries are are going to be working themselves out by that point. So I don't know if the Mets are going to need to make a huge move. Come right. end of July, but they'll, they'll have a better sense of what that move needs to be. I think um, I 100 I, percent I agree with you. I would say this, that if you're sitting in the Mets front office today, that it's probably best if you're planning to get nothing out of Noah Syndergaard for the rest of the year. You know, to have a setback at this time on the calendar uh, means that it's very unlikely he's going to come back and pitch meaningful innings during the course of the regular season. I, I think that's wise. As depressing as that is, I think that's why I think you almost have to look at him as, as a September call up where you never quite know what you're going to get from those guys. You call up in September. Sometimes there's lightning in a bottle. Sometimes they kind of fizzle out. You have to look at Syndergaard the same way just because it's been so long since he's, since he's started pitching the major leagues. Um, and one. Yeah. And one of the thing on him that's interesting, you know, he and Chris Sale had Tommy John surgery within a week of each other. Um, but they were in different uh, circumstances within the context of their respective careers. Sale was, uh, you know, in year two of a five-year contract. So from the Red Sox perspective, they want to keep him healthy as long as possible. And so they've been slow playing. Chris, take your time. You need another bullpen session. Go ahead. Whereas in Syndergaard's case, he's a free agent when the year's over. And he really needed to have a big year. Well, with this injury, the setback, what this means is he almost certainly has to pitch 2022 on a one-year contract for somebody. And so from his perspective now, as he tries to work his way back, that probably, you know, people who represent him to do their job are going to say, look, you have to protect yourself and make sure you're healthy for next year. And you wonder how that potentially affects how much he, he's able to come back and pitch at all. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. Tommy John surgery has become such a, 
such a standard in the sport. People forget that people have very different recoveries. You know, as a Mets fan, I remember Zach Wheeler lost almost two full seasons after Tommy John surgery. People just don't think of it that way because it is so commonplace now. But, you know, a player who had very young Tommy John surgery was Jacob deGrom. And you watch as much baseball as probably anybody on the planet. So you're someone I can talk to about this that will not be coming at it from the fanboy perspective that I do. But is there anything like watching Jacob deGrom pitch in 2021? Is there anything else in baseball like that right now? No. And I don't think there has been in baseball history. Um, Look, Sandy Koufax was unbelievable in his time. Um, You know, Walter Johnson was unbelievable in his time. I'm told I didn't actually see him pitch. (laughs) We're not that old. But (laughs) but players evolve and they progress. We've never seen a pitcher as dominant as Jacob deGrom ever. You know, as great as Clayton Kershaw has been, as great as Max Scherzer has been, we've never seen anyone do what DeGrom is doing. Uh, you know, throwing that hard with that much movement, uh, it, it's remarkable. You know, the other day I was texting back and forth with Jeremy Hefner, the, the pitching coach of the Mets, about DeGrom's view on velocity. Because, as you know, when you watch him pitch, he's, he's just so understated uh, in so many respects. And so I just asked him, he said, you know, how much does he pay attention to the velocity? Does he care about the velocity? What are your conversations about the velocity? And Jeremy said, yeah, he he does. And they have conversations about the risk and reward. It's so cool to see someone who understands his body and cares so much and learns so much so that they can absolutely maximize the type of long levers that he has with that body. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to think of a Tom Seaver and Nolan Ryan as being the perfect pitcher's body. You know, this sort of drop and drive, strong lower half. And now I think we uh, we are thinking of the perfect pitcher being someone like DeGrom with a long body, the loose body. Tyler Glass now, to me, for example, the Rays, mm-hmm. is probably the closest thing in baseball to DeGrom other than DeGrom. But nobody's pitched at this level. I mean, you know, as a fan, you want to believe every year your your best player is going to get better, right? That last year was just the beginning. But very rarely do you see a player who was already the best at what he did get better as he gets older. And there's a theory out there I wanted to pick your brain about that, you know, DeGrom did not throw a professional, not throw a pitch rather, until yeah. he was in college. He was a shortstop and it was a late convert. Do you think this idea of only so many bullets in the arm is, is legitimate? That because he got a late start, he can pitch longer because he didn't waste all of those repeated motions over the course of his teenage and early 20s years. There's no question about it. Uh, and I'm sure you've read the story that I talked to his college coach, talked to the scouts who were involved in drafting him. DeGrom didn't want to pitch at all. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be a shortstop. And then the last year, they basically had to coax him. And initially, the idea was that he was going to close games. And then it just so happens that he pitched a game at which a Met scout uh, attended in, at the University of Georgia in March of his uh, last year at Stetson. And based off that outing, the Mets are like, okay, let's go. But we'll bet on his athleticism. There's no doubt. And there are other examples of that in, uh, you know, in baseball history, the most prominent maybe being Trevor Hoffman, mm-hmm. uh, who's, uh, you know, the, the Hall of Fame uh, relief pitcher. His older brother, Glenn, had played in the big leagues. And so the Hoffman's dad basically saw how sometimes amateur coaches would abuse their pitchers. And so he refused to let Trevor pitch all the way through college. Trevor was struggling as a shortstop in the minor leagues after being drafted. And they asked him, hey, have you ever pitched? And, of course, he said yes. 
and he began to try to pitch, but he had basically what was a fresh arm. And I think the same thing is with is, is has happened with Degrom, especially after he got uh, you know had the Tommy John surgery. Yeah, it's it's been so exciting to watch because I mean the, the Mets are a franchise that has historically been built on pitching, and so when someone comes up as a great pitcher for New York, they're com- they're compared to against Doc Gooden and against Tom Seaver and these you know just incredible. Leg- legends who have this enduring legacy as Mets, you know, heroes. And to see DeGrom not only match those guys, but in some ways top those guys, it's just been so exciting. And I'm glad, you know, I have a lot of Yankee fans in my life, a lot of Red Sox fans in my life. It's nice to hear those folks be able to appreciate a great player for who he is and not care what uniform he wears. And I think there are a few players in 2021 who do that as much as DeGrom does. You know, I hear from all my baseball loving friends, you know, just how great DeGrom is. And I think it's good for the game to have guys like DeGrom so universally beloved. There's no question. Uh, yesterday, we taped uh, an interview, a rapid fire interview uh, with Dom Smith that'll run during the broadcast. And I asked him about the player's perspective, uh, their view of DeGrom. And it was exactly as you would imagine. He said he's almost a mythical figure. Uh, you know, he's like a superhero, not only because he's as good as he is, but the way he competes. And uh, I asked him, I said, okay. Uh, tell me about DeGrom's mound demeanor. And he just burst out laughing. He said, you can see when he gets mad and how he's just going to strike everybody out. Like the inning is going to end. The toughness that is in DeGrom, uh, this quiet toughness, because again, he's such an understated personality. It's really cool. The closest thing that I've seen in the last 20 years to him in terms of that mound presence was Roy Halladay. I mean, it was the same thing who played on, you know, mediocre uh, Blue Jay teams that struggled to score runs at times, and it didn't bother him. He just competed, and that's what DeGrom does. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, I want to take a sort of a wider view of baseball here, because like I said before, you watch so much baseball and you have to be on top of things. And there's been a really interesting debate happening this year about the shift. Now, I think that baseball is a game that evolves and that pitchers have to catch up to hitters sometimes and vice versa. And there's been a lot of talk about banning the shift or about adapting the use of the shift. How do you feel about the shift as a, you know, as do you see it as something that needs to be reined in a little bit? Uh, I think the, at the root of this is the question of, you know, what do we view uh, baseball as a current product? And I think it needs more action. You know, lowest uh, batting average in the history of baseball league-wide, highest strikeout rate in the history of baseball league-wide. I think there are a number of contributing factors, higher seams on the baseball this year, enabling pitchers to, to spin the ball more. Um, there's a lot of buzz about foreign substance used by pitchers. That was my next question. We'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> okay. Um, but the bottom line is I think they, they need to use the tools they can to augment offense. And I remember when Rob Manford first suggested they would regulate shifting, I mocked him. Like I thought it was ridiculous, but now 
they they just have to do something to get more hits, to have more runners on base, to have more action. I've had people in the game privately telling me they look forward to a 10th or 11th inning with the runner at second base artificially because they feel like at least something is happening, uh, which in, in a lot of games and a lot of in, innings, it's not happening because of all the strikeouts. That's that's interesting. I I can't imagine being one of those people who thinks that the runner on second base is a good thing, but but I understand the idea of wanting more action in the game. Uh, but you brought up foreign substances, and this is something that's been going on in baseball, I mean, quite literally from the beginning of baseball. And there has been, you know, the spitball was banned however many years ago, but there's always been the player that you thought was using a little bit of something on the ball, doctoring the ball somehow. And this year, there's been a lot of conversation about that. Like you said, I think in part because the offense is just so down, there needs to be a scapegoat here. But looking forward, do you think that there is a way that baseball can regulate this? Is it going to be that any substance on the ball is is cause for ejection? Is it going to be that there's going to be a list of certain substances you can use? You know, how do you see this being regulated? Because to me, it seems like an almost an almost impossible situation to truly regulate. They do have a rule on the book, but your point is very well taken. In fact, about five years ago, when I asked someone in Major League Baseball about, you know, why is it that we have this gentleman's agreement in place where everybody on the field knows the umpires, the managers, the coaches, the players, they all know that in every game, literally half a dozen to a dozen pitchers, depending on how many are used, are using foreign substances. You and I could watch a game and we could see a pitcher get a ball returned from the umpire and they rub that spot just below the, the, you know, the shiny spot and just below their gloved hand. And we know that they got, you know, pine tar or sunscreen or whatever it is. And the answer I got back was because writing the rule is impossible because you're talking about degrees and you're talking about volume. But there's also no question, in my opinion, and I'm hearing this a ton from folks in the game, that the last couple of years, it's gone next level in terms of the use. Where, you know, back in 2013 and 14 and 15, it was more about just getting a tacky feel on the ball, which Mm -hmm. was the problem. And now it's become weaponized, where pitchers have learned how to spin the ball more effectively with a substance. And I don't know exactly what, you know, each pitcher uses But the other day I had uh, someone who's on a coaching staff tell me that the stuff that some pitchers use now is so uh, has so much adhesive that pitchers now are afraid of putting it on their skin, that they put it in their gloves because if they put it on their skin, it potentially could do damage to their skin. Uh, And that and so they said and he related an instance uh, in the last three weeks in which uh, players in one dugout, knowing that the opposing pitchers was using this, basically were screaming at the pitchers saying, stop it, stop cheating, because they knew the way that he was spinning the ball at such a high RPM that he had to be cheating. They got to get away from that, because that clearly, as one general manager said to me, it's like they're throwing 98 to 100 mile an hour wiffle balls at times. Wow. Now, I don't mean to pick on one guy here, but – it seems like Trevor Bauer is a lightning rod for a lot of things in baseball. And I wonder how much of this conversation stems from the fact that he is somebody who has been rumored to be doctoring his ball quite a bit. And his personality is such that people take notice of him for good and bad reasons. Do you think that the, that Bauer's personality has anything to do with the reemergence of this topic? He's educated us on it, right? 
I mean, for years, he'd be tweeting out saying, look at these spin rates and everyone knows how you do this. There's only one way to do it. And he complained and he advocated. And I know this because a couple of times I'd say, well, everyone knows in baseball that uh, people use foreign substances and Trevor would tweet back. It's cheating. Well, last year, and I don't know what Trevor does or doesn't do, but it's certainly the evidence suggests, look, if you can't beat him, join him. Because all of a sudden his spin rates went crazy mm-hmm. and he got this record setting contract. <laughs> and and now because he's been so vocal on it, he, as you said, has become the lightning rod on it. But I think he's done. Uh, he's educated people on it. And I suspect that his feeling deep down inside would be keep the, the playing field level. If the playing field is level, then I'm good with it. Uh and the playing field, I think, uh, for a lot of pitchers, probably wasn't wasn't level for some years. And, and I, I definitely understand that. And I think that there has to be something done. But like you said, I don't I don't know how they begin to do that. All right, can I can I jump in? Absolutely. I, I actually feel like it's an easy solution, and I don't understand why baseball because they already have the rule in the books. Go to the umpires and say when the pitcher comes into a game, check his glove, check his hand, like just standard operating procedure. You know, in hockey, and I don't know if they still do this, for years they would just check the, the sticks of the players before they started and to see if they were legal or if they were Ill- illegally mm-hmm. curved. Do it when they come into the game. Here's your entry point. Okay, you know, Trevor Bauer, let's see your glove. Let's see your hands. Up, oh, you're good to go. As long, I think as long as the playing field is level, a lot of players will be okay with it. I mean, the, the cynic in me says that it'll just move from the glove to the back of the hat or the inside of the of, of your leg or something. You know, they'll find new ways around it. But I think you're right. I think there needs to be some sort of regulation because as the ball moves more at that velocity, someone's going to get really hurt. And to me, that is the thing we have to avoid above all else, just players getting hurt. And we're seeing a record number of hit batsmen. I mean, Kevin Pillar, yeah. uh, I, I thought, did a great job uh, of talking about that after he was hit. Look, that's this is the way it goes. Pitchers are throwing harder than ever. The ball's moving more than ever. There's less control than ever, and the players are more at risk. Now, uh, before I let you go, just you know, talk about the Mets-Braves game on Sunday night on ESPN. What are you looking forward to? Who do you think is going to be a, uh, you know, aside from DeGrom, who's somebody that has your eye that night? And uh, is there anything about the Mets for our listeners that you think, you know, they should know about that you're optimistic about maybe? Well, certainly DeGrom is our focus point, our focal point, Uh, (laughs) you know, and we were supposed to have him on opening day. He was going to pitch against Max Scherzer. And then the the Nationals had the COVID breakout. So we were bummed. And now as we sit and look at the forecast, you've got your fingers crossed and saying, please, let's get a window open so we can see DeGrom on Sunday night. You know, that would be really cool. I, I like, when teams go through what the Mets are going through right now, I love watching the esprit de corps develop. Like, okay, you know, next man up. And Dom, when I talked to him yesterday, spoke about that. You know, having these guys who are basically no-names. You know, Billy McKinney, who, you know, has been involved in about four or five trades, has kind of bounced around. He's got an opportunity. You know, that's where uh, at the end of seasons, you know, legends are, are, are written. And, you know, this this trade for this guy uh, or somebody stepping up, you know, the, the way it played out, for example, and there's no better that in uh, example of that in Mets history than Wilmer Flores, you know, where he, he almost gets traded. He's upset. Uh, and then he comes back. He has some big moments. I, I love that. I mean, when you have teams have adversity the way the Mets are having adversity, the way the Braves are having having adversity, that's cool. 
And Ronald Acuna Jr. is so much fun to watch. He is. And, he, and he's such a unique personality because he's so expressive on the field. And what I hear from the other Braves players that in the clubhouse, he's actually super quiet. He doesn't really bounce around that much. He's kind of keeps to himself. And then he gets into a game and it's like an actor going out on center stage and just exploding. I mean, as Dom said, you can't wait to see at the end of uh, Acuna's career um, what numbers he put up because he's that good. He's probably the closest hitter we've seen in baseball since uh, Manny, since uh, closest thing to Manny Ramirez that we've seen. That, that's high praise. Uh, well, Buster, thank you for making the time. I was going to tease you about your family's farm and George Springer, but no, you Go know what? We've had such a nice conversation. I'm going to leave that one be. So where no, folks- I was wrong. Shoot. I got that wrong. Right. And thank goodness. You know, there's some relieved heifers uh, on my farm. You know, <laughs> there are probably some maple trees that will stand longer because, uh, you know, I, I, I was wrong. So uh, it's all look, good. Look, whenever you have to be a soothsayer for a living, you're going to get a couple wrong. We're not holding it a against couple. you. Don't worry. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> I'm being kind here. Now, uh, where can folks find you online, Buster? Uh, at, uh, I'm, you know, right for ESPN.com all the time or uh, my Twitter handle, uh, Buster underscore at ESPN. Thank you for making the time. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will agree. We've been enjoying watching you on TV and reading your work for a long time. So keep it up. Thank you. Well, folks, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Go to AmazingAvenue.com for all your Mets needs. You can find us on all relevant social media at Amazing Avenue. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this show wherever you get podcasts. Please give Buster a follow. He was great to chat with. I really enjoyed that. Follow me on Twitter at Brian Needs an App. And until next time, let's go Mets. Let's go Mets.